Welcome to Trailhead Church. I actually have my voice this week, so that's a good thing. Um, bad thing is for some of you, I heard some of you thought I sounded like Batman last week, so no Batman sermon this week. All right, we are continuing our series called The Great Adventure, and um, that means you need to grab your Bibles. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up your, your Bible apps. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor in front of you and open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 3 again. That's uh, page 1001 in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, um, please feel free to take the one on the floor in front of you. We would love for that to be our gift to you. Anything we can do to put the Word of God into your hands so that you'll read it and engage it would be awesome. And uh, that way you don't have to feel guilty about writing in it, which is not a bad thing either. Feel free to mark it up. All right, so we're going to Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3, before we read it, why don't we pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather around your word. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, that your word um, tells us the truth about ourselves, about this world, about who you are, what your heart is. I pray, Lord, that, that we would have hearts this morning to listen, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we know that that comes from your spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts and give clarity to our vision this morning. That as we discuss um, really big picture stuff, um, that we would see clearly how it impacts um, our daily lives. Lord, I pray that you would free us to the joy that is ours in Christ and uh, move our hearts just to respond honestly with integrity and to move out of that place of honesty and integrity, um, to be bold in living it and in sharing it. So I pray, Lord, you'll be here this morning active in our hearts. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity we have to, uh, to do this together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word of the Lord. All right, last week we, um, we started talking about the gospel and, and really focused on the personal invitation of the gospel. We looked at, at those key words that God has spoken and that he um, continues to speak in the person of Christ. And, um, and we were talking about how the gospel is um, good news, good news to be lived and good news to be shared. And so as we talk about this, we're going to un- continue to unpack the gospel and we're going to dig into this idea of evangelism, uh, a word that's not incredibly popular today um, among Christians or even non-Christians. It, it carries with it a lot of connotations of manipulation and um, insincerity. And um, for some people, it just fills their heart with fear. And, and so we're going to talk a little bit about this. Um, <clears throat> at the heart of it is the fact that, that there is a good news, right? The word gospel itself 
is a word that means good news. The Greek word for gospel is, is euangelion, and, and that Greek word is used in its noun and verb form 130 times in the New Testament. It is the central idea at the heart of our faith that there is this message that's good, <laughs> that, that there's this message that is good, right? Euangelion, that, there are two pieces to that Greek word. Um, El, which means good, and, and angelos, which means message or messenger. It is a good message. It is a proclamation of joy. Our English word evangelist actually comes from the same word. Evangelion comes through the Latin, but the same root, eu and, and angelos, a good messenger, a messenger of joy. Now, this word um, had a lot of meaning at the time of Christ, and, and, and the New Testament writers took this word and said, okay, this is the word we're going to use to talk about how we experience and then share the good news of the gospel, this good news of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? Um, the word itself was used in political settings. Uh, it was also used in um, other settings to speak of joy. But, but um, one of the ways the word was used to speak specifically of a messenger who would come back after war, when a city went to war during this period of time, uh, they didn't have a professional army, most cities like we do today. Um, and, and so like, you know, today we, we can be at war and... Um, we have a professional army that goes out and does the fighting. There's very little threat to us personally. We have a lot of insulation between us and, and what's going on. And, and that's a blessing. That's a great thing for us. Um, not the experience for most of the world and not the experience during this period of time. During this period of time, if somebody came and threatened your city um, or your group of cities, basically everybody who was of fighting age, all the men would just drop their work utensils, go pick up their weapons and go to war, right? Or they would take their work utensils and make them. Uh, weapons of war, and they would all march off to go to war. And you can, you can imagine how vulnerable the city felt as they watched all of the fathers and the sons marching off. Because if they weren't victorious, they knew who was coming over the hill. And they weren't going to be friendly. There were going to be people coming to pillage, people coming to, it'd be time to run, right? And, and, and if you're one of those men out on the front line, you know the tension you've left in your home community. And so what they would do is if they were victorious, they would send somebody ahead of them, this, this evangelist who would run ahead of them with this message of joy, this proclamation of joy. And so when they saw the evangelist running over the hill, even before they heard, they knew what the message was, victory, right? We've won. There's no invading army. There's, there's nobody coming to pillage and destroy, right? We have won. We are protected. And so this, the, you can imagine how eagerly they would await the arrival of this message of joy. An evangelist is somebody who brings a message of joy. That's what they are. An evangelist is somebody who comes and speaking from their joy invites you in to their joy. And the bottom line is everyone in here is an evangelist. Everyone in here has a point of joy. And when you have a point of joy, you can't help but speak about it. You can't help but share it. You will speak about what lights you up. It's just going to happen, right? During this season, every year, we are surrounded by uh, sports evangelists. You know what I'm saying? Their Facebook feeds are just lit up with with Cardinals this and Cardinals that and Cardinal Nation and we're the best fans and this is why and nobody else makes it to the playoffs as much as us. And some of you are like, yeah, a little dampened from last night, but we're going to get back on track, right? Because an evangelist is always determined by hope, right? We're going to, yeah, 
Some of you are like Giants fans, very few of you, but you're like, yeah, you're, you're, you're filled with a little bit of hope today. Um, here's the thing. You're going to talk about what gives you joy, whether it's your job, your family, a victory, a raise, um, an accomplishment, a personal accomplishment. You will talk about what gives you joy. Because when you love people, you're going to invite them into your joy, Right? I mean, when you're with people that you know and you're excited about, you want them to share your joy, and so you speak about the things that light you up in joy. Everybody's an evangelist, right? And so you share it with your emotion, you share it with who you are, you share it in your actions, but you also share it with your words. And so basically, as followers of Jesus, we are called to share our joy, to operate in joy and to share our joy right? Which means that we need to have a deep understanding of the gospel so that we can have a deep experience of the gospel. The reason a lot of people don't share their joy in the gospel is because honestly, they've truncated their joy by having a truncated gospel. They don't fully understand the blessings of the gospel. They haven't fully entered into their, to, to, to understanding what God has done for them and is doing through them. And as a result, they don't experience full joy, full freedom, that comes with it, right? So we need to have a full experience and understanding of the gospel and then be able to explain that experience clearly with our words so that we can invite others into the joy to experience that joy. And here's the thing with the gospel. While this message of the gospel is deeply personal, it is mind-blowingly global. God's plan is way bigger than you believing in Jesus and going to heaven. A lot of people, they've, they've just simplified to the gospel to this idea, well, I just believe in Jesus and then I go to heaven. And they're not quite even sure what heaven is, you know, maybe clouds with harps. Here's the thing. God wants to do a lot more than just take you to heaven. He wants to work through you to bring heaven back to earth. God has a global redemption and restoration plan of which you are a part, and it is incredible. All right, take a look at our verses. As we unpack this, verses one and two, we looked at last week, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke amazing. God didn't fall silent. He continues to speak and to invite us in. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The ultimate word that he has spoken is in the person of his son. I want you to think about it this way. God is the ultimate evangelist. God speaks from his joy and invites us into his joy. Even when we have rejected him, even when we have insulted him, even when we are walking to the best of our ability in independence from him, he's humble enough, joyful enough, free enough to invite us in to experience his joy. God is speaking and his words amazingly are not rejection. His words are not condemnation. His words are not, why don't you ever measure up? His words are not, why do you always fail? His words very simply are, come back to me. I invite you into relationship. I invite you back to trust. See, God speaks truth, and part of truth is uncomfortable. Part of truth is hard to hear. God does tell us the truth about ourselves and about our sin. But as he tells us the truth, he does it in the context of grace. God speaks the truth while inviting us into the joy of relationship, an invitation to intimacy and a return to dependence on God as the one who loves us and provides for us, an invitation to come back. Now, at the end of verse 2, 
the author tells us some pretty incredible stuff about Jesus, this word that God has spoken to us, his message about who he is and what he's like. It says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed, the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. I don't know if you see what he's doing there, but he is the heir of all things, and he is the creator of all things. The author of Hebrews is basically bookending history with Jesus. It starts with him, and it ends with him, right? He created the world. He is the heir of the world. It was created by him. It was created for him. This tells us a couple things. First of all, Jesus is at the center of the story. In fact, this story is about him. He created the world to be this place that shared his glory, that ultimately uh, uh, reflected his glory and lived in the outpouring of his goodness and his joy and his fullness, right? He's at the end of the story um, where he's restoring everything to that point. He is at the center of the story. That tells us that God is not distant. He is not disinterested. He isn't busy or cruel or absent-minded. He started this story, and he will make sure that it reaches its right conclusion, right? He is the trailhead of human history. Not very often I get to use our name in a sermon. He is the beginning and the end of the trail. He is the beginning and the end of the story. He is the origination and the consummation, right? This word for world is interesting where it says that he created the world. Um, some of you have probably watched the, the TV show popular. It's called Cosmos. Um, the word cosmos is a Greek word that means the physical universe or the physical made up pieces of the world. And often in Greek, when it says that, that God created the world or God so loved the world, it is that Greek word cosmos. But on our text here, it is not cosmos. It is a Greek word ionos. And Ionos doesn't speak just of the physical world. It speaks of the physical world and all of the ages that encompass it. The word Ionos is a word that literally is speaking of time. When it says that God created the world here, what it means is He created time and everything in it. He created the ages of the human story. He's the beginning of the story and the end of the story. He is the one who created the context for this story. He stands outside of time as the creator of time and the author of time. What he's asserting is that he created the ages of the world and the path on which it would run. He is not just the God of creation. He is the God unfolding the story of creation. He can declare that he will be at the end of the story because he's the God of the story. He isn't um, reactive. He isn't out of control. He isn't just hoping that everything works together in the way that he has planned. He isn't just responding or being a crisis manager. He is telling a story. And the reality is all human life is story, isn't it? I mean, think about your own life beginning, middle, and someday end, right? It's a story filled with drama and, and poetry and love and success and failure and pain and hope. 
And that's the story of history. It is one story after another story after another story. And all of these stories woven together tell one story, the story of human history. And if you get far enough out, like if you go to the, the Google satellite view, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not on the street view. You're out here on the, on the broadest view. What you see is that all of these stories combine together to tell one incredible story. And in fact, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is the context of this one great story. The Bible's a remarkable book. I don't know if you've thought about it, um, but it is pretty amazing. 66 different books, some personal letters, some history, some poetry, some prophecy, um, some legal stuff, right? 66 different books, around 40 different authors combined to write these things in three different languages in about 2,000 years. And yet it tells one story. I don't know if you've ever had the responsibility of being an editor on any large project, uh, whether it's a, 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 a you know a design and layout editor or a copy editor. Some of you who've worked on high school and college yearbooks know exactly what I'm talking about. You pick a theme, and that theme is supposed to run through the entire work. I was always the copy editor, which means the words guy, uh, the one that's always working with the words to make sure that they're thematically all tied together. Almost impossible and a project like a yearbook. You know why? Because you have people coming with different personalities, different writing styles, different understandings of what's going on. They all come together, and I'm supposed to make sure that when you go through this thing, it reads like a single book, right? like carries a single theme. And, and, and that always drove me nuts as a coffee. I have no idea how you could manage a project like the Bible. How could you manage a project that takes that much time written by that many people from that many different contexts, that many cultures, coming together to tell a single story. It only makes sense if the copy editor is bigger than the story. If the one who's putting it together is outside of time, weaving time together, it is an incredible book that tells an incredible story. And so what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time and talk about the ages or the the stories segments, or if you want to put it this way, the acts of the story. I have a friend who um, put together a, a helpful diagram of the six acts of human history. And when you get out to the largest view of the Bible, this essentially just is your, this is your run through the Bible. So this morning, I'm going to teach the entire Bible. You ready? We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to end in Revelation. I hope you are well-fed and, and well-hydrated because, not really, it's not going to take that long. But this is the way it works. Now, this is um, what I love is, is I call this napkin theology. This is the kind of thing that you can sit down with somebody at a coffee shop and just sketch it out on a napkin because it's simple. That doesn't mean it's simplistic. See, when we're simplistic, that means there's a complex thing to understand, but we stop short of the complexity and oversimplify it. That's what a lot of people do with the gospel. They don't really have an understanding of the gospel. They've oversimplified it, right? What we want to do is move into the complexity of the issue and come out of the other side and understand it so well that we can explain it simply. Does that make sense? And, and this is a great way to help simplify something that is complex, to take something that is multivariate and has a lot of different kinds of applications and, and simplify it into a way that we can have a handle on. So we're going to kind of go through these uh, six acts of the gospel, okay? So first of all, we have creation. Creation is at the very beginning of the story. We know that, right? When you go to the book of Genesis and you open up the first chapters, what you see is God speaking, 
And he's not just talking to himself. He is actually speaking the world into existence. There are six days of creation. And in each day, he speaks something else into existence until on the sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve, mankind, humanity. And when he creates humanity, he creates humanity unique among the created order. They are created in his image, right? Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the world. So he creates them uh, in his own image, speaks them into existence, and then speaks to them in his image. Because they bear his image, they have that personal relationship ability and they relate to God unlike anything else in the created order. And then he gives them dominion or stewardship over all creation. And creation at this stage is defined by what theologians call shalom. Shalom is a, a Hebrew word that is loaded with meaning. Right? We, we know shalom, it means peace, right? But, but shalom means much more than a lack of conflict. It, it means a, harmon, a harmony, a, a purpose, a, a flourishing of life. So when, when theologians speak of shalom, it means that everything is in its proper place. Everything is properly balanced. Everything is unique and different, but everything is in tune. There is a glorious hum to the created order because everything is singing the same song. Everything is working in coordination with each other. During this period of human history, there is shalom. There's a glorious hum. Everything is as it's supposed to be. Everything is where it is supposed to be. Everything is working in coordination with everything else. There is a peace, a balance, a flourishing. But that didn't last very long because in chapter 3, we find the great rebellion. In chapter 3, mankind, humanity, um, who is created in the image of God, basically tries to take the place of God. They look at God and they say, you will no longer be our center. We'll center on ourselves. We will no longer live for your glory. We will live for our own. We will no longer lean on you in dependence. We will be independent of you. They committed what theologians call cosmic treason. I like that language because it speaks not only of deep betrayal, which it was, the betrayal of the one who loved them, created them, had relationship with them, but it also carries with it a sense of crime. There is a crime against the natural order in which God created the world. There is a treason that is so deep, so powerful, that it is sin. The Greeks um, had a creation story. The, the, I told you the Bible was written in Greek. The Greeks were the dominant culture of the world at the time the New Testament was written. Jesus was born into um, a culture, a world that was dominated by the Greek culture. And the, and the Greeks had a creation story that echoes the, the Hebrew story, the, the one we find in the Bible. Um, there are some similarities, which some people are like, you know, doesn't that bother you that there are other creation stories that are similar to the Bibles? I would say absolutely not. Um, if this is the true story, we would expect it actually to echo throughout all the other cultures of the world, maybe distorted, maybe a little bit different, but we would expect to find very similar themes. Um, and that, that is what we find in the Greek story. Uh, the gods, plural, come together to create the first human and they create Pandora and everybody contributes. All the gods kind of come together and throw in different pieces to create Pandora. Uh, one of the gifts that they give her is the gift of seduction, um, there you go, ladies. Uh, the Greeks believe that that is one of your great strengths, okay? Uh, the other thing they gave her was a jar. It's often called a box. You've heard of Pandora's box. It was actually Pandora's jar. There you go. Uh, and they don't tell her anything about it. They just say, here's a jar. Enjoy, right? 
And then she's like, well, I got a jar. Huh? What do you do with a jar? You open it, right? And so she very innocently opened the jar, having no idea that what she was doing was actually unleashing evil into the created order. All evil was in this jar. So according to Greeks, this is how they answered the problem of evil. How do you explain the presence of evil in what seems to be a good world? Why are humans uniquely capable of such depravity? We see hardship, we see pain in the entire created order, but we see genuine evil in humanity. Why? why? And they would say, well, Pandora opened the, the jar. As soon as she realized what she unleashed, she sealed it again. But she left one thing inside, hope. And so in their version of creation, you have the unleashing of evil and the locking away of hope, that there is no hope for the undoing of what has been done. The biblical story is interestingly similar, but quite different. First, she is not, Adam and Eve are not innocent victims. Adam and Eve made very willful, conscious choices. They weren't duped by fate. They weren't trapped they were given a choice to either submit themselves to God for the glory of God, admitting that they're the creature and God is God, or they can reject God and dependence on God for autonomy from God. So they broke the shalom of God and chose independence, saying, we will be independent of you. Now, as Americans, that sounds incredibly attractive to us. We totally relate with that. We're like, yeah, independence is great, right? Independence is one of the great virtues and values of our culture. So independence is wonderful. The problem is, how can you be independent of God, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together? It's kind of impossible to be independent of the one on which you are naturally dependent. It's like your little kid looking at you and saying, um... I, uh, I don't need you, right? I don't need you. And then running to the kitchen, grabbing food out of the refrigerator, going to their bedroom and locking the door. They're completely dependent on you. They can't get away from their dependence on you. What they're really saying is not, I don't need you. What they're saying is, I don't want your authority in my life. I want you to keep giving me the gifts I need to survive, but I don't want in any way the relationship that puts me in a position that needs to depend on you. And so that's what happened. Mankind looked at God and said, we want all the gifts of God, but we don't want the presence of God. We want the gifts, but not the giver of the gifts. We want you to keep enabling us because you're the one that gives us all things for life and sustains us, but we don't want you to put any obligations on us for love and relationship. So in our sin, we substituted ourselves for God. We will be equal to God. We will live for our own ends. We will live for our own glory. We will live for our own purposes. And that led to the next chapter or the next act of the story, which is the age of promise represented by the long arrow. Amazingly, as soon as mankind rebelled against God, God did not simply judge them. He didn't simply kick them out. He didn't destroy them. He didn't pour out his wrath on them. He didn't completely undo everything he had done. He spoke a word of promise. In Genesis chapter 3, amazingly, he explains to them the consequences. It's often called the curse when you get into to Genesis 3, but that's not God cursing his people. It's him saying to them, look, there are consequences to the choices you've made, and it will feel like a curse. It is a curse, but you've unleashed this. 
So here are the consequences from the choice you've made. But even in the middle of that, right as he's explaining the curse that resulted from their choice, he unpacks for them a promise. Right there in Genesis 3, he says, I will send a seed of the woman, a son, who will crush the serpent's head, who will undo the evil that has been done. And that began this age of promise where God continued to speak and basically say, I still love you. I will not abandon you. I will not give up my hope for humanity. I will not change my purpose in creation. And I will not leave you. And what we find is during this period of time, when you read through the Old Testament, there's a series of covenants. And the biggest covenants are actually named after the people they were made with. A covenant is basically a solemn agreement like a contract. The difference is these are unconditional covenants in which God is the only one obligated. So he basically said, look, I'm going to make a contract with you, but it is actually a promise because you're going to get it one way or the other. This is just the way it works, right? So when he spoke to Noah, he said, I won't flood the earth again. Really what he's saying there is, is I will not judge it in the same way I have. And, and in the judgment, we saw the ark carrying the people of God safely through judgment. So what we have is actually a promise that even though there is judgment of a different kind, there's a Savior, an ark, who will carry us through. He, he met with Abraham and he said, you're going to be the father of many nations. And in fact, through your son, all the world will be blessed. He met with David and he said to David, you will have a son who sits on the throne forever, an eternal kingdom. See, we see this narrowing and narrowing and narrowing of the promise as we move through the Old Testament, as he, as he gives more and more specific promises until it culminates in the birth of the one of whom he was speaking, Jesus. And that leads us to the next stage of the story represented by the cross. The climax of the story in which the hero of the story steps into the central crisis of the story to bring a solution. Right? Jesus, the hero of the story, is God become man. Where, where sin is man substituting himself for God, redemption is God substituting himself for man. In fact, that's what we read about in, in verse 3 of our, of our passage. In verse 3, speaking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is God in the flesh, the perfect manifestation of who he is, his desires, his pursuits, his character. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not lacking any authority or power. He is, in fact, part of um, this power that he spoke of that, that created the ages and is moving all of history to this point. And then we find this verse. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The culmination of God's plan is that the hero would make purification for the sins. He's actually using language that comes from the Old Testament temple. And in the Old Testament temple, what they had to do to purify themselves from sins were to bring sacrifices. And none of the sacrifices were permanent. And so they had to keep bringing them over and over and over. And there were no chairs in the temple because there was never a time the priests could sit down because the job was never done. And yet what we find is that Jesus comes in as the great high priest, offers the ultimate sacrifice himself, and then sits down at the right hand of God, indicating that the work is absolutely complete. The payment is full. 
that all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament sacrifices were ultimately fulfilled in the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. And when he rose from the dead, it wasn't just for himself. How he did it for himself. Remember, he is the center of the story. He is God. And, and all of creation was created to be the holding place of the outpouring of his goodness and his joy and his glory, right? He is the center of the story, but he didn't just do it because he was God. He did it for man. When he rose from the dead, he rose in a body. He lived a human life. He died a human death and he rose again in a human body as the forerunner of a new humanity. He did it so that there might be a new father of the human race a new representative of what it means to be human so that he might tell a very different end of the story than the first, first father would have told, a story of redemption, a story of restoration. So when he rose again, he did it that we might be birthed through faith into a new kind of human life, the kind of human life we were in fact designed to have. And this leads to the next stage of the story, which is mission. Mission is the short arrow. The reason it's short is because this is the act of the play we're living out, right? We know where it goes. We know the end of the story. We know where we are in the story. But this is the part of the story that we get to, in a sense, um, ad lib. We get to be part of the action, right? This is the great adventure of what it means to be followers of Jesus, right? It is the age of the evangelion. It is the age of good news, Right? It is the age of discovering and sharing the good news of Jesus. What's interesting about this age is that it is an overlap of the ages. This age is the passing away of what was and the birth of what is to be. Do you realize that we live in the twilight or the pre-dawn hours of the human condition? that we're in the darkness of what was, but we're in the birth of what will be. We know how the story ends. We know where this thing is going. And we live as believers in Christ with one foot in this age and one foot in the age to come. We're living now, but we are not living for now. We're living for what's coming because we know what's coming. See, this is an age of mission. The word mission, like evangelism, is a word that often carries, I think, negative connotations with people outside of the church because, again, it sounds manipulative and it sounds like... But here's the thing. It simply means that it's an age driven by a purpose. There is a purpose behind this act of the play. There's a purpose behind our stage of the story. There's a purpose that drives us. And that purpose, very simply, is to discover and live out the beauty of the gospel. To discover and live out the reality of what life looks like now that Jesus did die and rise again. To give us a new name, a new identity, a new purpose. The good news of a hero who is setting all things right. 
who is freeing us from our need to prove ourselves to rest in him, from our need to establish our own identities to rest in the name he has given us, to freeing us from the shame of our past into the dignity of our future, freeing us from the slavery of our poor choices into the beautiful freedom of having our desires remade um, so that we truly desire the things that are worth life and give life. It is this age of discovery of receiving and living out the promise, of discovering the beauty of the promise. And it's an age of inviting others into the promise. God's called us not simply to live out, to, to believe and live out the gospel, to not simply walk in the benefits of, of the death, burial, and resurrection, but he has mandated that we, in fact, invite others into the process that we be so lit up by this good news that we are driven by joy to share it with others. And that leads to the final act of the story, which is restoration. The final act is represented by this downward arrow. Once again, God comes and dwells among man. The Bible continually predicts this age. It describes this age. We're not given a ton of detail about it. We're given enough. We know that it's an age in which God once again is dwelling with man. In the final chapters of the Bible, we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And, and, and the new Jerusalem is described as the people of God with God dwelling in her midst. This idea that there will be a new form of human community, new form of human existence, in which once again, the glorious hum of shalom will define every aspect of life. You realize that during that period of time, you'll be able to, to follow every impulse of your heart. Because every impulse of your heart will be driven from joy and gratitude to God's glory. You'll be able to pursue every interest. You'll be able to explore how God has created you, the variety and beauty of creation. This is represented by a down arrow because a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, think of the end of time as honestly as an up arrow, this idea that God's going to somehow take us out of this world to some other place. <laughs> like we call it heaven. Uh, clouds, harps, floating. Um, sounds really boring to me. Um, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that we will not be experiencing what it means to be human in the age to come. That God is coming to earth to purge and restore, not take us away, but restore Himself to our world. It's the great reversal and restoration. You guys, this is a message of joy. This is the best news humanity has ever been given, that the God of all creation is humble enough to love us, identify with us, redeem us, and restore us. So as you look at this, this really is a, a, a view, in a sense, of that Google satellite image. This is the gospel. A lot of times we think of the gospel as, well, Jesus died for you. But that, that's the heart of the story, but it's not the whole story. The whole story is, is it all comes together to, to give us a, a, a complete picture of the work of God, both globally, cosmically, personally, right? So it's good news on both the macro and the micro level. So let me just unpack a few areas as we wrap up how this is good news. This is good news for us personally, right? When you think about those six acts, those describe our lives. We were born, right? We were created, uh, and it didn't take long for us to act in rebellion, um, Anybody who's a parent, 
Uh, it's kind of hard to know when your kids become sinners because they're like born that way. You know what I'm saying? Like they just, every three-year-old basically is looking at you saying, you are not the boss of me, right? They are looking at the universe saying, I don't need you, right? Or they're saying, I do need you. In fact, I need your approval so deeply. Otherwise, I am completely broken and lost, right? So you have some that are power kids that are all about establishing control. Some are approval kids. They, they just want the approval of everyone around them at all times. And that's how they make themselves feel good. There's, what we find is that very early in life, we start making choices of independence instead of dependence. Choices where we're looking to the gifts of God instead of the giver of the gifts to meet our deepest needs. We share in cosmic treason. And yet, even as we become sinners and act out on our sin, there's a promise. That long arrow, there is a promise. The promise of redemption and, 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 and forgiveness, right? Promise that, that God loves us in spite of us, that he has not rejected us because of our behavior, but is persistent in his pursuit of us, that he keeps inviting us back into relationship. No matter how many times we reject him, no matter how many times we look to things that aren't him to try to... to, to find life's meaning and purpose, no matter how many times we, we degrade ourselves, no matter how many times we hurt others, God persistently stands there like a parent standing outside the door knocking and saying, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not running away. And right now you're throwing a fit and right now you're angry and right now you're accusing me of all kinds of stuff and right now, but I'm not leaving. There's a promise in the gospel that no matter how much we fail, God never does. And his love is persistent. And what we find as we become believers in Jesus is that this global plan of cosmic restoration is radically personal and intimate. That while God has a purpose of restoring the entire created order, it begins with the restoration of sinners like me. And I find in Jesus forgiveness for my past and freedom from my shame and a new beginning daily in grace. I find hope for my future, a future that is not earned by my behavior or my achievements, but is given to me as a gift based on the achievements of Christ. It changes my prospects of success and failure. I no longer have to build my life on my success, running from my failures, because I am not defined by my success, nor am I defined by my failure. I'm defined by the success of Christ, and I find in Christ grace for every failure. I am not defined by who I am and what I've done. I'm defined by who he is and what he's done. This is incredibly good news for us personally. But what that leads to is an understanding of incredibly good news that is also good for us collectively. See, this is good news for human culture. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but the story begins in the garden, right? The Garden of Eden. The garden, and I say this a lot, but it's because I think it's such an incredibly important point. The garden, what is a garden? It's a cultivated place of wildness. God basically gave us all the raw materials of human culture, began the process of cultivating those raw materials, and then said, protect and maintain what I've given you and push it out. You were created in my image as culture makers. Now go out and create culture. Create, make, maintain, build. And what we find is that while Adam and Eve begin in a garden, we find God's people end in a city. It is a, a new Jerusalem, a city coming down from heaven. 
And for some of you that are like totally agrarian, you're like, no, nah, dude, I don't want like city life. All right, it's going to be like no city you've ever imagined, all right? But what we see is the progression of human culture. This is not an escape from human culture. It is the redemption of human culture. It was God's intent to sanctify and give us this great gift of creativity for us to build and develop and and discover. There's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, at times about how the gospel relates to culture. And when we have a misunderstanding about how the gospel relates to culture, it often leads to unrealistic and hypocritical engagement with culture, where we either copy culture without truly engaging it. <laughs> Christians are really bad at that, creating bad copies of good things. <laughs> but they're like, oh, those good things, those are bad, those are evil, you know? So we're just going to make a bad copy of a good thing and call it Christian, right? Um, we're really bad sometimes in, in just rejecting culture and, and adopting this superior attitude, which is really hypocritical. I was kind of, when I became a believer, I was in a group like this. I have some friends that they basically moved to Arkansas and started a compound, a Christian compound. And their whole purpose was to basically create cultural walls, to shut out what was bad and to build only what was good. And we're only going to be Christians. And basically we're white knuckling it, you know, living good lives until Jesus comes and takes us out of this evil place. Which is really ironic because you realize that by going down to Arkansas and, and, and starting this farm, even though it's, it's self-sustaining and all the rest of that, all they're doing is opting for a pre-industrial revolution form of human culture. <laughs> they haven't escaped human culture. They've simply idolized a certain era of it and gone back to it and said, well, we're, gonna, we're not going to do movies. We're not going to do TV. We're not going to do drama. We're not going to do roads and cars. We're going back to the simple life because that's... You're simply idolizing one form. Here's the thing. Culture is like water to a fish. We swim in culture. We breathe culture. If you're wearing clothes, if you speak language, if you, if you use tools, you are a product of and part of shaping culture. Culture is not something to be rejected. Culture is not something to be copied. Culture is something to be created to the glory of God. Do you realize that the gospel completely changes the way we operate in a corporate manner? See, when we misunderstand the gospel, it leads us to take what should be gestures and we make them postures. In other words, there are things we should reject in culture, things that are abusive and evil and wicked. And those things should be rejected because they are vile, right? But it's really bad if you take that gesture and make it your posture. Well, all culture should be rejected. Not only is it impossible, um, it's hypocritical, right? It's an impossible stance to take. There are some parts of culture that should be consumed. The gospel tells us we shouldn't consume all of it, though, because some of it's unhealthy. But there are pieces of culture we should celebrate and embrace. And there are pieces of culture that need to be redeemed to be taken, and, and for their glory, the, the glory that they give to God and the freedom they give to our lives, embraced and, and, and celebrated for God's glory. You guys, this, when we realize this, when we enter into this, it, it changes the way we do all corporate life, the way we do our families. I mean, the, the most fundamental unit. Our culture, our culture tells us that um, ultimately to be as successful as, as a person, you need to get married, you need to have kids, and those kids need to be on the honor roll. They need to be really good at sports. 
right? Everybody has that bumper sticker, my child is an honor roll student at, right? Nobody has the bumper sticker that says, my kid flunked out, right? Um, we're not proud of those things, right? Unless it's a sticker for irony, that's a whole different thing. But um, why is that? Here's the thing. Is, is it better to be married than single? Not necessarily, right? Biblically speaking, God may be calling some of you to lives of singleness. And in your life of singleness, to live for the glory of God, for the great, the great freedom and for the great glory of, of God, right? And, and when you have kids, you're not more of a success if your kids are well-behaved in public. You're not more of a success if they're honor roll students. The only measure of success in parenting is how much your kids love God. That's the, the biblical model. If they love God, they'll follow God. If they follow God, they'll find the true measure of success. Why? Because what this tells us is that the things that we do in this age are not the most significant or the most valuable. They are valuable, but they're not ultimately valuable. It is we're living for the age to come. And what that means, it, trans, it, it completely changes the way we do work. Think about the place you work and how you engage your job. And you're like, Steve, man, I hate my job, man. It's mindless stuff. It's, it, do you think everything that was done in the garden was like this most fulfilling, deep, like super experience, right? Like Adam's like trimming the roses, like, look at me. I'm doing this to the glory of God, right? Now, there's a lot of mundane things in life. They're transformed not by chasing things that are more exciting, but by realizing you can do them to the glory of God. Yeah, maybe you have a mindless job where you're simply shuffling papers. Do it to the glory of God. You are in a moment redeeming that aspect of culture for God's glory. See, the primary issue of this age is not whether or not we are fulfilled, but whether or not we are following. We have a God who's on mission, and our responsibility as those being redeemed and restored is to follow that God on mission, to use our lives, our gifts, our talents to the glory of God, to simply submit them to Him. You guys, listen to me. This frees you from the slavery of discovering all of your potential. Some of you are terrified that you will not live up to your potential, that there will be areas of your life where you do not fulfill every area where you have potential. I have good and bad news for you. You will never live up to your potential. And God hasn't called you to. Do you realize that it's going to take you all of eternity to discover all the potential that God has placed within you? Your responsibility is not to live up to your potential, to be something great. Your responsibility is to be a follower of Christ in all of its simplicity and all of its glory. See, this gives dignity to the most undignified work. It gives honor to the least honorable thing. If we do it to the glory of God, suddenly it has cosmic, eternal significance. We are doing it in light of the age to come, not fighting for all of our meeting in the age that is. Do you see how futile and worthless that kind of life is? To say, I have to reach all of my potential now. I have to find all of my fulfillment now. I have to find all of my happiness now. That's not the freedom of the gospel. That is absolute slavery. We are free to follow, and in following, we will find greater delight, greater joy, greater freedom, greater fulfillment than we can ever imagine. Because our freedom and joy and fulfillment doesn't come from what we accomplish. It comes from the God who created us. It completely redeems and restores our vision of success. It frees us from our slavery of running from failure. See, this is good news for us personally. It's good news for us collectively. And it's good news for all of creation. 
the loss of shalom that plunged the entire created order into degeneration will be removed in the restoration of the created order. Romans 8 describes creation as being subjected to futility. Interesting phrase. Why? Because it's still doing what it always did, but now it's futile in its effort to glorify God. It was designed to be part of the glorious hum. But because of the disorder of, of the loss of shalom, it can't. And, and Romans 8 goes on, 8 goes on to describe it as, as a, a woman giving birth, yearning in that urgency and pain for the next stage. All of creation is waiting, it says, for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God, for the restoration of all things. Because in doing so, the glorious hum will once again be restored and all of creation will be operating in the full flourishing of the glory of God. You guys, this is the best good news. It's the kind of good news that should fill us with joy and compel us to share it with others. And here's the thing. If we're not joyful about the gospel, if this doesn't fill us with joy, the problem isn't with the gospel. The problem is with us. If the news does not excite our hearts, the problem isn't with the news. The problem is with our hearts. We're not getting the gospel. And so it begins by once again realizing the overwhelming news that the God of the universe loves us in spite of us, that will work through us in spite of our weakness, will do something cosmically wonderful through the redemption of individuals. Now, in the next two weeks, we're going to talk practically about how you can be good evangelists with this news. Good messengers of joy, working from joy and inviting others into that joy. We're not going to be talking about guilt. I'm not going to be manipulating you with fear. Um, I'm not even necessarily going to be giving you all kinds of strategies. I'm just going to be talking about joy and freedom and how those things operate in our lives and how in love we can share with others how they can enter into it. So come back for that. Now, coming into response, I have some questions for you to consider. So some questions as we move into a time of just quietness for a moment and some response. Have you repented of your self-trust and trusted in the promise of the gospel? This is the first and prominent question. Have you given up your self-salvation project, whatever it is? I am finally worthwhile. I'm finally meaningful if I X, Y, Z. Have you come to reject your self-salvation project and come and trust in the one who actually has an effective one, and that is the person of Christ? Have you repented of your self-trust and trusted in the promise of the gospel? Have you thought about how the gospel is good news for every aspect of your life? Because the gospel, there's no area of your life the gospel doesn't impact. The gospel impacts your money management. The gospel impacts how you work in your job. The gospel in, impacts how you relate with family. It, it relates with how you pass that guy on the side of the road who, who is in need. It relates to every aspect of life. Have you really thought through and are you digging deep to discover how the gospel impacts how you follow God as a God on mission instead of being independent of God? trying to build a kingdom in competition with his. And finally, who is God leading you to share this joy with? Who has God put on your heart that, that he's saying to you, I'm going to work through you for their good. I'm going to release them in joy through your joy. Who is God putting on your heart that you might be a good ambassador of joy? All right, you guys take a few minutes and pray. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go in time of response. We're going to share communion in a moment. That'll be introduced, but let me pray for us now. Father God, we thank you that you are a God on mission and that your mission is to bless, to redeem and restore. We thank you, Lord, that you are a humble God 
who didn't get personally offended by our treason and rejection. Separate yourself from us, judge us, and leave us. Do you quietly, patiently knock and invite and love? Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts sensitive. You tell us that we love because you first loved us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the incredible display of love you've given us. And that from that, we would overflow in joy and generosity with others. Knowing that our source of joy is limitless. <laughs> the measure of our blessing is Christ. Which means there's no limit to our blessing. Give us a vision of life, Lord, that allows us to live for what lasts instead of what passes away.